everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Yoga Pants Sleetstorm? I don't know, I was thinking oh, Nylon okay. Typhoon. There we go. I don't have uh, anything I wear that's like nylons. And I guess maybe they didn't mean nylons when they named that threat actor. You know what I am talking about in about half an hour, guys. On today's episode, we will be discussing two typhoon-based threat actors, including one wearing yoga pants. (laughs) But before that, though, uh, we'll go over some research relating to GitHub repo jacking. Uh, With that, let's go ahead and, uh, I don't know, stretch our way in. Sure. Is Repo Jacking some new DLC for Grand Theft Auto? I don't know. Board of Car Jacking? (laughs) So starting this week, uh, wanted to pick up some research that I saw originally posted on Reddit. Uh, but it was an article by the security firm. Why are you on Reddit? Uh, isn't there a Reddit ban going on? Don't we not like them right now as a whole community? That only ended right. after three days. Time for a quick <laughs> tangent. I am so conflicted about all that because I do get a lot of my news off of Reddit. Like there's that is a lot true. of like just personal like gaming related stuff I use Reddit for. At the same time, I would say I business agree. stuff like too. Like I have to yeah. admit, between the MSP channel, WatchGuard, Sysadmin, as much as I give some Reddit crap, it's there's some valuable information there, and it's where community can come together when bad things are happening. Anyways, keep going. But I've been using <laughs> the Reddit is fun app on my phone since I started using Reddit like crap eight years ago, and they're going to disable that and their access to it in like a week. And there is a non-zero chance. Well, they may, may, maybe not. They'll allow you access, but you have to pay a billion dollars a year to actually get your little app to work. <laughs> well, because of that, the Reddit is fun app is shutting down on the 31st, however many days are June, 30 days, have September. Yeah, 31st. Uh, and there is a non-zero chance that if I lose access to Reddit via that app, I just stop going to it because I'm not going to go download their app. I tried it once recently and it's hot garbage. Yeah. So. Man, What's Twitter the iPad? Alien Blue. Reddit's There's one I loved, Alien Blue, because Reddit's app crap, was so crap, too. So I agree with you. Their app has never been as good as third-party ones. I think in the short, like, in the very near future, I just may not use social media anymore at all. I've already gotten off of Facebook and, you know, Instagram and all those. Uh, Reddit and Twitter were my last two, and both of them just seem to be imploding. But anyways, this is not a Mark's social media usage podcast. <laughs> But you found some cool Reddit research uh, that you'd have to wait for some other blogger to mention without it. So what is the cool research? Uh, So it came from from security firm Aqua, and the big headline for it was millions of GitHub repositories, including some owned by Google and Lyft, are potentially vulnerable to repo jacking. Uh, So I guess first, repo jacking should probably explain that. Um, So as a software developer, most uh, software packages products, whatever, they use like third-party libraries very frequently. Uh, you might get those libraries from something like the Python package index or pip or Node.js for Node packages. Uh, you can also just import code directly from GitHub itself too, if you want. Um, so there's, depending on what software you're using, you might like reference a GitHub repository specifically. Uh, GitHub repositories, the way that they work 
It's github.com slash the organization name slash the repository name. Uh, you can go download code directly from there. You can go grab the latest releases, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so organizations on GitHub also have the option of changing their name. So if I had the organization name, uh, let's say Mark's Software Widget Company, that's a long ass name, uh, and I was acquired by WatchGuard. MLS. Uh, Watch yeah, Just yeah, acronym and I said, yeah. <laughs> Wait, I didn't do it right. It's Mark Laliberte. I yeah, M MSW, I should say. MSW. All right, that's my organization name. Let's say I was acquired by WatchGuard. WatchGuard ports my code over to their own repository. You can fork it. You can just restart fresh, whatever. And they decide to retire my old organization name because I don't exist anymore. They could either change that name to something else, or they could just delete the organization entirely. It's up to them. What GitHub does behind the scenes, though, is they actually create a link from that old repository to the new one when you change an organization's name. Uh, this is because uh, it, they don't want to break these dependencies that may exist. There may be, for any given repository, like thousands of different ones that point to it. And if you were to change the name, it might suddenly break all of those links. Um, so uh, behind the scenes, they create a link from the old one to the new one. But it doesn't actually prevent someone from going and claiming that old organization name that's been freed up due to the name change. So if I change my organization name from what was it, MSW to, let's say, WatchGuard MSW, someone else can and uh, claim the organization name MSW. And within that organization, they could then set up whatever repositories they want, including potentially new repositories that conflict with old ones that I used to have on there. So there are some... Uh, oh, and finally, the issue that that causes or the end result of that is it breaks that link that GitHub has from the old one to the new repo after a name change. And now any of those dependencies will point at this, let's call it attacker controlled repository. Uh, so GitHub has some protections for this. Um, quote unquote, popular repositories uh, can get retired, which prevents someone from reusing that new repository name. Uh, if they take over the organization name, it actually tells you this repo name's been retired. You have to name your repository something else. doesn't stop you from taking over the organization name, but it prevents you from recreating those old repositories. Uh, that said, another research firm, uh, Checksmarks, found a bypass to that retired names list uh, that... Uh, by basically changing the order of, of operations. So they found GitHub assumed that everyone's workflow would be uh, claim the retired or the old organization name and then open up a new repository matching something old they used to have. As a different workflow, you can create a random organization name, uh, create a repository name targeting the one you want to spoof, take over, whatever, and then change your random organization name to that retired one, which then gets around some of these protections. So long story short, like this is an issue that's been around for a while. Other organizations have researched it, uh, but Aqua basically just wanted to see what the actual scope of the threat was and define some actual attacker scenarios. Uh, so they used a uh, project called GH Torrent. Uh, it stands for GitHub Torrent, which is literally a collection of every public event in GitHub's history since 2012. Every commit, every pull request, everything that is done on a public repository is stored and archived in this giant list of 
files that you can get from a torrent. Um, so as a test, Aqua went and they pulled a random month, uh, June 19th. Within that month's worth of data, they found 125 million unique repository names uh, split out over a smaller number of organizations. Not all of them, but still a ton. I mean, not close to all of yeah. them, but still a ton. Exactly. By the way, it's, it's kind of like a, a why can't I think of it? Uh, it's it's kind of like a public ledger of of yeah. GitHub activity. This this torrent and all those files. So we've got GH torrent. Maybe we should set up like GH Bitcoin and make some money off of this. Yeah, we, we might as well. Let's have a Mark and Corey Ponzi scheme. We'll be rich. Not sure about everyone else that buys in, but hey, sorry, you've heard us anyway. talk about Ponzi schemes. You should know better. <laughs> uh, so they took a one percent sample of this. So one point two five million. Uh, still a statistically yeah. significant number and then they checked to see if that sample uh, within that sample size how many of them were vulnerable to repo jacking they found that just shy of thirty-seven thousand, so 2.95 percent were vulnerable and if you extrapolate that out to the entirety of the 300 million total github repositories that puts the potential vulnerable ones into the millions range yeah it's and pretty, pretty much three percent right of yep was it I, I actually I'm a little confused. I thought uh the extrapolated number at, when you extrapolate it to 300 million, uh, maybe I read it wrong. You it was 336,000. I I I didn't I maybe I read the page wrong when I was going through it, but I thought the final number was 30 37, but maybe I screwed up the the math. 37,000 is from the 1% sample size of the so 1.25 million of the yeah. 125 million pulled in that month if you take I'm just 3%. surprised they didn't give us the extrapolated number what is the yeah. 37k when extrapolated to 300 million i mean we could do the math but still the math is 9 million since it since it's one percent you just have to add a couple anyways of zeros long story short crap load uh so they did some uh they came up then with some like attack scenarios like how a adversary could actually exploit this weakness and go after victims. And they came up with two. Uh, so the first one would be automated downloads without the user's knowledge. Basically, I as a user go download some other code base. Within that code base, it links to this vulnerable repository as a dependency. Uh, this is an issue that's, man, a massive issue across open source just in general. Like understanding your entire dependency tree is it takes like entire applications to try and figure that out, like entire products you have to license to get your full software bill of materials. Um, but that's one example. The other one is, and I think the more common one they found is let's say you want to go uh, set up this application and you find their legitimate GitHub repository going through their install instructions, they say, okay, step number one, go clone this repository and then build the application here, move on to step two, three, whatever. Uh, sometimes these readmes, these instructions aren't updated over time. Uh, these uh, software maintainers, they don't necessarily go back and check to see anything that they've linked in their in installation instructions, if it's been updated or you know, potentially changed. I and think we'll get to examples too, but there's probably even 
where a legitimate company forks their GitHub and might have two GitHubs, but one, they, they just made a new one and maybe gave it a slightly different name, even though it's theirs, but then they stop maintaining one and forget about it so that it, maybe that's one of the reasons a lot of things don't get updated after time. You know, oh, it's some forked thing within a company that just gets forgotten about. Yeah, a good example they actually gave in their research involves Lyft and a company that they purchased in 2017 called YesGraph. Uh, so YesGraph used to have their own GitHub uh, organization. Inside that organization, they had a repository for a program called Dominus. Looks like it's just a tool for setting up like a development pipeline. Uh, so after acquiring the organization, Lyft set up their own repository within Lyft's organization on GitHub uh, for that Dominus application. Inside Lyft's version of it, there was still the all the original code that they just copied over from YesGraph, and the setup uh, shell script included a step in there to go download and retrieve the latest code from YesGraph's GitHub repository. So it referenced it as github.com slash YesGraph slash Dominus, even though this code now existed in Lyft's own repository. Uh, Lyft eventually renamed YesGraph's repository to something else or gave it up, whatever. Uh, so presumably that link still existed. Now, if someone were to go and claim YesGraph's organization name, which these researchers did, they could set up a new repository called Dominus. And now if someone were to use Lyft's code and run that setup sh uh, shell script, it would go download from this now attacker-controlled repository and execute code from there. So that's one example. Another one they gave was in a Google repository called MathStep. It has 275 forks and 2,000 stars. Uh, think of a star as like a like on GitHub. Uh, so a decent amount of people actually using this repository. Uh, so this, uh, in the build instructions for it, it tells developers to go and clone a specific repository called MathSteps uh, within the organization Socratic Org. Uh, so Socratic Org was acquired by Google in 2018. Google cloned their code base into their own uh, GitHub organization. Um, and in this math steps repository in GitHub, it still references the old Socratic Org math steps uh, repository. So Aqua actually made a proof of concept by repo jacking that Socratic Org math steps repository. And they actually found a decent number of connections out to their proof of concept code, basically proving they could have gotten code execution on some of these developer workstations. Uh, they reported it to Google and Google fixed that link within their documentation. By the way, I think that's a good, a good example to show that, like, I, I don't know if you agree, but Google's a relatively security conscious company. You know, they run zero day. They know security well, I would argue. I mean, we sometimes... Android sometimes has issues as does everything, but I think they know security well, but this was one of their repositories, a huge tech giant. And I'm, I'm not throwing stones at them in this case. I'm just saying it shows that this is kind of a hard, like if you, you're not thinking about all the different ways that things can be repo jacked, this is something that even very smart and security conscious companies can accidentally have in your GitHub repository. And so the mitigations that Aqua provided, this this is a pretty tough thing to protect against when it comes to like dependencies of dependencies you use. But at least in the code that you're aware of, they recommend regularly checking your own repositories 
uh, for links that may fetch resources from external GitHub repos, including your own, uh, because potentially if you were to change the name of your organization, that link might break or be repo jackable. Uh, they also recommend that if you change your organization name, make sure you still own that previous name. So go and set up a new account just to sit on it as a placeholder to prevent people from launching one of these attacks against you, which I think are two pretty good mitigation advices. And man, what is it? Millions of repositories potentially vulnerable to this. And there isn't really an easy fix from GitHub itself. Like they're trying to do their best to not break dependencies when someone changes their organization name. But by doing that, and not just locking out the old org name, like it just leaves it open to this style of attack. Like what's the alternative, I guess? Uh, if you change your org name, it just instantly breaks everyone's dependency for your org name. I guess that would at least like show a light of fire under everyone when they see stuff breaking and potentially bring it to your attention. I don't know. Okay. If you manage your own code in GitHub, definitely something to be aware of. Uh, especially if you plan on being acquired by Lyft or Google and having your name changed. Yeah, I, I think, by the way, if people find, I, I'm, I'm not sure if we put it in the notes, but if people go to this uh, Aquasec post on it, I, I, at the very beginning, this isn't the first time that analysis has been done on GitHub repo, uh, repo jacking and security innovation did something uh, you know, before uh, Aquasec that uh, didn't cover the same detail, but has some similar analysis about, you know, looking at, you know, millions of unique GitHub links and finding how many were hijackable. So just a shout out to Security Innovations Research too. If you're really interested in this subject, I recommend you click on one of the first links in the Aquasec thing to check out that older as well. Yep. Uh, so moving on now, uh, last month, I guess if you if you're in the technology space, which if you're listening to this podcast right now, you probably are. I hope so. <laughs> It'd be quite boring otherwise. <laughs> probably well aware of a pretty massive attack going around involving uh, Barracuda email security appliances. Uh, if you're not already aware of it, last month Barracuda announced a zero-day vulnerability uh, CVE 2023-2868 in their email uh, security gateway appliance. It was being exploited in the wild as early as October 2022. Um, they started patching it immediately. Hats off to them. Uh, a week later, they updated their guidance, though, instructing victims to immediately replace their appliance if they were affected, um, which is a tough spot to be in for sure. Uh, they also brought in Mandiant to investigate, and Mandiant recently published their blog post with their findings, where they linked the attacks to UNC4841, which is a threat actor, backed by the Chinese government. Uh, I might actually, man, UNC4841. I wonder which uh, tropical storm that relates to from uh, Microsoft's naming convention. It's something, what, Typhoon, right? Typhoon Not is more. Japan. Oh, no. Um, no, no, that's it Tsunami. Is. Typhoon is... Oh, I forget Typhoon. Uh, it is Volt Typhoon, one we just talked gotcha. about. Awesome. So Volt Typhoon from Microsoft links to UNC4841 from Mandiant. We really need like some like lexicon or something where we can map all these together easily. Uh, it's, it's getting a little out of hand. Anyways, now so in Mandiant's post, as they do with all of their investig investigatory posts like this, 
they went into some details about the malware and the attack techniques that they spotted. Uh, so the exploit starts with an email containing a malicious file attachment that uh, they send to victim organizations. Uh, they noted that Barracuda initially discovered this activity on May 19th and releasing containment and remediation patches on the 21st, but that UNC4841 quickly altered their malware uh, to have additional persistent mechanisms, which seemingly uh, prompted um, prompted uh, Barracuda to instruct <laughs> their users to uh, replace their appliances if they were affected versus trying to recover them. Uh, so the vulnerability itself, it's actually like a pretty simple command injection flaw. Uh, so some of the functionality in Barracuda is written in Perl. Perl has this function called QX, which is basically... Uh, by the way, you, you, you're, you're about to describe simple and technical exploitation and how it works. But uh, one thing I'll point out after is it's it unfortunately makes it a widespread flaw as far as the attack surface. But keep going. It's a... Uh, yep. how, how does Python... How's it so work? Perl uh, has a Perl. function called QX that basically lets you execute commands on the underlying operating system. Um, and they were using this to execute the tar application on these mail appliances to unpack uh, tar archives that are sent in email attachments, seemingly to ultimately analyze Scan the Scan them. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, Scan so the, the contents of the compressed file anyways. Of course, you know, we talk a lot about zipped by the way, Tar could probably can. I guess it uses gun. Tar has unzipping capabilities too. But either way, uh, Tarball is another way to compress. And uh, you know, we talk about how threat actors purposely try to evade security controls by compressing their files. So, pretty obviously, a good thing for email security or network security product to do to try to open up compressed files, whatever they're for. At least add malware protection, DLP, whatever scanning capability the security appliance has. So really, kind of a core functionality of a product like an email security product. And unfortunately, though, they don't sanitize the names of files before piping them into this QX command. Ultimately, so what that means is uh, you could send a email attachment containing a tar file or even a nested tar file. Uh, where the file name itself can escape the tar unpacking command and then execute an arbitrary command within the file name on the email security appliance. Um, so they initially sent emails with just a tar extension. They later changed them to .jpeg and .dat. Uh, they were still actually valid tar files themselves. Uh, seemingly, the email appliance recognized the magic bytes and not the extension and still performed this action but it adds a little bit of a layer of obfuscation to their uh, mail delivery techniques. Uh, they also specifically designed the emails to look like very obvious spam and get picked up by the anti-spam filters on the appliance uh, to... try and run it through this vulnerable function which would then trigger the exploit and uh, execute a uh, basically a basic reverse shell payload using OpenSSL in order to connect to a command and control server under the attacker's control. Uh, through that command and control connection, they then deployed several different types of malware and or backdoors. Uh, Mandiant gave them some fancy names. Uh, so the first one, the primary one that they used is called CSPY. 
which is a passive backdoor that sets up a PCAP listener, a packet capture listener on ports 25 and 587. So where email is be being delivered. Uh, so it would first capture all email messages that went through there, obviously, but it also had a magic packet you could send it to actually communicate with the backdoor and seemingly retrieve these email messages through it. Uh, they also had a tool called Saltwater, uh, which was a module for Barracuda's SMTP daemon uh, that could upload or download arbitrary files, execute commands, or even contain a, a reverse tunnel back to the attackers. And then there was Sandbar, which was a full-on rootkit in the form of a trojanized network file system uh, kernel module that could hook into uh, and hide processes that actually begin with specific names. So they'd use this rootkit to hide the other processes of the other malware that's going on if you were to try and look at the running processes on the appliance. Pretty clever method of uh, covering your tracks. Uh, the initial persistence uh, was an hourly or daily cron task that would execute, but then they later inserted commands into other legitimate scripts within the appliance itself. So they went through pretty decent lengths to try and hide their tracks, including a full-on rootkit that gets started anytime the appliance starts up too. So I would presume the rootkit might be part of why they went the hardware replacement versus, but the, the, the persistence you're talking about doesn't necessarily, you know, it, 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 it's keeping persistent on a running system, but did they talk about upgrade persistence? Like, like every network security appliance, I'm sure this appliance can have firmware upgrades. And if, if you have a firmware upgrade, uh, depending on how that upgrade happens, you know, it may or may not defeat malware, even though the malware has active things on the current OS to try to stay persistent. Did Mandiant talk anything about how the mechanism affected the upgrade process? Just more out of curiosity to understand more why they replaced the hardware. They did not go into details on that. So I'm assuming it's a little sensitive or something. And maybe Barracuda didn't want the, uh, the nuts and bolts of how their upgrades work. Uh, to that, that that's yeah and everyone listening this is speculation that both of our, us are making maybe they decided they just wanted to do a hardware fix for other things i would say if a if a malware has a rootkit like you have to analyze a pretty deep rootkit to know even if you have cleaned it up because there's active kernel level things hiding the files that you think you may have cleaned up or not so i i think the rootkit itself makes it a much deeper thing, but I assume there has to be some sort of upgrade persistence too. So it'd be interesting to see if that does come out. I do want yeah. to repeat, by the way, the other interesting thing, uh, we're definitely not throwing stones at this security vendor for having issues. We've had ones ourselves with Cyclops, Blink, Ford, you know, there's countless security vendors that have been targeted lately, whether they're VPN flaws or other things. So this is not a first time this, this Threat actors, especially state-sponsored, have targeted network security appliances. Uh, but I do think that a lot of the ones I've seen have either been in VPN, which I guess is, you know, it's not always turned on, uh, but it is at least internet available when it is turned on, or in management interfaces, which to me, the management interfaces one, it's a shame that anyone is ever vulnerable because normal practices mean you shouldn't put a management interface. But as I understand this, this tar decompression, this is something that every, you know, 
every single email appliance out there does by default. It makes the attack surface for this flaw, like they, there really is no If you're using an email appliance, you have to allow email. And one of its core functionalities is to look at files, which means uncompressing things, I presume by default. I presume there's, maybe, maybe there are settings to turn it off, but I'd be surprised that Barracuda didn't recommend that while they figured it out. So just pointing out that the attack surface of this relatively simple flaw is very big. It, it, it's almost by definition any email appliance out there because they have to have 25 open to get email. And, you know, parsing email and its attachments is core functionality. Yeah, absolutely. It's You can see why threat actors, especially state-sponsored actors, are exploiting these types of vulnerabilities and really protocols and applications that have to be exposed to the internet for them to actually work. And in fact, like Mandiant even pointed out, just over 25% of the organizations impacted by this were government organizations. Wow. You can imagine like Barracuda is a well-known uh, email security vendor, and it makes sense that a lot of government organizations would have this type of appliance too. And we've seen that That's historically okay. too with what was it, Pulse Secure and Fortinet vulnerabilities going after larger organizations that are using these products. And man, that's, as an industry, it feels like this is definitely the uh, an area that still needs a little bit of love with securing these things. I mean, we just chatted last week, I think, about CSERT and their requirement now for federal agencies to at least secure management interfaces exposed to the internet. But that doesn't solve the issue of things like email that has to be exposed to the internet. So, and I also think what we'll see a lot more in hardware appliances, no matter who they're from, are things like considerations like secure boot, considerations like securing the upgrade process, considerations like, you know, what to do to prevent a, a kernel rootkit eventually has to be a process that runs on the device. So, you know, super mature hardware like Cisco when they made routers. I, I remember one of the big Cisco zero days that got ripped out of a Black Hat book, one Black Hat. Uh, that person also had overrides for Cisco's watchdog process. And I'm, I'm not missaying WatchGuard. I think it really was called Watchdog. Uh, but it was a process that was basically there to make sure the only processes running on the router were recognized Cisco ones. Now, I don't think it was using signing back in the day, but I think mechanisms that, uh, you know, I think networks, hardened network security vendors are going to start to realize, despite the fact that a piece of a hardware appliance should have more hardening than like you installing the average email server yourself, uh, and I believe they do. We certainly do a lot to harden our OS. When they do have vulnerabilities, if you don't have mechanisms to, you know, guard the processes that can actually run, malware can get on a machine, a kernel rootkit can on, on your machine. So it'd be interesting to see if these network manufacturers respond by putting a lot more active local security controls, something you're not going to see. Like as a user of these products, this might be invisible to you other than us talking about them. Uh, but just things that make sure that we watch active pro processes and try to find it. If we do ever have someone with root control, how do we make sure they don't run anything on the device that's not intended to be there? And if you are a, a vulnerability researcher, uh, now is the time to uh, go hop on HackerOne and try and make a bunch of money for a whole bunch of yeah. organizations.
targeting we them. actively want to find these in ours our our own team has found some but hey these are the vulnerabilities like that are among the highest paid that we offer so definitely join hacker one if you're interested in we'd love you to test our stuff so moving on to the last story this will be a bit of a quick one but this came from research from Symantec. Uh, into the operations of The Flea, which is another Chinese state-sponsored threat actor. I, I'm not even going to try and look up which one this actually relates to in Microsoft weather patterns terminology. But uh, so The Flea is still another state-sponsored one out of China. And specifically, Symantec were highlighting a new backdoor, which they've called Graphican. Uh, so the main takeaway from their research, the thing that stood out to me was how this malware uh, locates its command and control uh, channel. So instead of having like a hard-coded command and control address within the malware, it instead authenticates to and accesses OneDrive using the Microsoft Graph API to get a encrypted command and control server uh, address as a basically a child folder within a OneDrive storage location. Um, so it, it, when the malware executes, the first thing it does is it first disables the Internet Explorer 10 uh, first run wizard. Basically, you know, the first time you open up Internet Explorer or any web browser pops up that window to like help you configure it, get it off the ground, make it your default browser. Well, it's actually just a registry key. You can go in and edit to prevent that from happening the first time you open Internet Explorer. Uh, it then checks to see if the Internet Explorer process is running. And then it goes and uses the iWeb Browser 2 interface, which is basically Internet Explorer usable by .NET applications, in order to create a new session, authenticate to OneDrive, and then get a encrypted folder name uh, from that OneDrive account. It then decrypts it locally, and that is the domain it needs to reach out to for command and control, which it then registers itself to and then waits for commands uh, regularly. Uh, so I guess pausing there for a second, we've seen and talked about some pretty novel ways of both facilitating command and control and getting command and control IPs. First time I've heard of using OneDrive as a method for grabbing those addresses. So that's kind of interesting. I think up until now, some of the other recent ones I've seen was like using Reddit forums is pretty popular because you can go set up your own subreddit other people probably don't even know it exists without actively searching for it. You can send Reddit posts that contain command and control information. Uh, I've seen Twitter accounts abused for this too, but it's the first time I've seen OneDrive abused for it. And it kind of makes sense why they'd use it. Like most organizations these days use Microsoft 365 and some flavor or another or Azure Active Directory. And so this connection to go out and retrieve a C2 address from Microsoft will be hidden right in with all of your other normal traffic to Microsoft themselves too. Yep. So it's a good way of kind of hiding your tracks. And by the way, I, I, I can't remember, I don't think you pointed this out, but uh, while it was also new to, I, I hadn't actually seen this, this graph API with OneDrive connection. It is not the first time it's happened. At least last year, it sounds like Russian state-sponsored actors, this is according to Samantha, the same blog post that's talking about this one, used it very similarly with something called the Graphite malware. I presume that's why Semantic called this Graphican to relate it to Graphite, uh, even though it seems to be a different state actor.
By the way, yep. just for a small waste of time, APT15 used to be called Nickel, but now has a Microsoft name of Nylon. So with China, uh, this is Nylon Typhoon. Nylon Typhoon. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Uh, real quick, the malware itself, some of the things it can do, opens up an interactive shell, can create files, upload files to the C2, execute new process, and then run PowerShell scripts as well, too. Um, some of the other activity that Symantec has pointed to from Flea or... They like to steal passwords using every single freaking open source password browser stealing tool possible. Like, I was surprised that... High, like. Mimikatz is one of them among them, but there's like 12 different types yep. of password stealing tools that they use, all open source, all things we know. But I'm like, my goodness, I guess you just want credentials. That's really, that's all you need, frankly. <laughs> of those tools, lasagna is one I hadn't heard of before. I'm going to have to go look up that it one. It sounds like a good one that actually gets cross like a passwords from lots of, lots of different things, not just Windows OS and stuff. So yep. yeah, I, I did, I noticed lasagna as well. So I guess Lasagnus. It, it, Lasagnus spelled weird. There's a Z in this one, right? Either way, or, uh, yeah. Uh, difficult to spot the initial network activity going to Microsoft, but the actual C2 connection is just a normal old malware C2 connection. So you might have a chance of spotting that, and hopefully you are running endpoint detection response tools capable of detecting the malware itself too. EDR specifically might also, in the worst case, if a normal preventative malware detection doesn't stop it from getting on a computer, a lot of these tools that we're talking about that they use, EDR should detect some malicious use of them and even maybe some of the PowerShell commands being run. Yep. Either way, cool research. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the next C2 channel is that these uh, threat actors are trying to use. You think we're going to see like a truth social based one at some point here? <laughs> that would be hilarious. There's already been Reddit. I'm sure they've used just about every sort of Twitter, every sort of social media for a hidden CNC in the past. But yeah, truth social would be a funny infection vector. Although I think it's already infecting brains. Hey, oh. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey's at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. That should be a new Olympic competition to see who can pull the weirdest face to get Mark to screw up his outro. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs>